gentlemen, we will not have the glossary up because of other provisions that we're making, but it's been up for like two weeks now. Right. So when I throw out words like uh, premillennialism and amillennialism, which I'm not going to be throwing out those words at all, that's great. Uh, I am going to throw out a word, uh, preterists, preterists. I'm going to use that word. You want it spelled? Hold on. Preterist. P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T-S. -E -E it's a big, long, fancy word, and it just means past. So preterists are those that believe that these events have already happened in the past. And then to make things easier, instead of throwing in a bunch of new words or trying to categorize everything, I'm going to use the word futurists. So we're going to talk about preterists, and we're going to talk about futurists today. So as promised, we're going to start looking at the Olivet Discourse. First of all, why do you think it's called the Olivet Discourse? <laughs> John said it includes all. Why do you think it's called the Olivet Discourse? What did you say? It's on the Mount of Olives. The gentleman's name is not Olivet. It's on the Mount of Olives. Okay. So this is uh, this is basically after Jesus has uh, departed the, the temple in Jerusalem. He's with the disciples, and they're basically asking him questions now. As they stand up on Mount Olives, this is basically just before all the events take place, you know, uh, leading up immediately to his, his arrest and crucifixion. The reason that we're looking at this is uh, the, the questions that are asked. Um, basically, they ask about the destruction of Jerusalem. They ask about uh, his return, and they ask about what those what will lead up to his return. Now, <clears throat> we are going to take a look at it, and it would be real easy for me to say, okay, this is the perspective that we're going to take on this, and uh, it's the only perspective that I'm going to give you, and this is the way that you should interpret it. It would be real easy for me to do that. Just can't do it. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, we're going to read through it. We're going to discuss a little bit, but we're going to look at both the preterist side and the evidences that they say um, mean that, that the events that live that are listed here in the Olivet Discourse have primarily already taken place by uh, AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. We're going to look at the futurists, which say these events did not take place by AD 70. Uh, it was not about the destruction of the temple. It was not about uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. But these are the things that are to come. Uh, and this is what it will look like for the second coming of Christ. 
So I'm going to try to give you somewhat of a balanced view uh, in that regard so that uh, you can make that determination yourself. Because we do strive always to not just tell you what to believe, but uh, give you enough impetus to, to read and determine for yourself what you should read uh, or how you should understand something in that type of thing. Now, of course, we do give guidance on that because we do uh, study quite a bit to try to understand it ourselves, uh, but you should explore these things for yourself as well. And if you have questions and uh, you want to know more about it or if you have trouble interpreting something, obviously, we are always there to assist you in that uh, so that we all have a, a good, a solid understanding of these things. So uh, we're going to take opportunity to give you a foundation for discussion, and then we'll go ahead and get into cell groups, and uh, we'll get into having discussion today. So uh, it'll be a good opportunity for, for talking with one another. In order to do that, we do have to delve into uh, the Word of God. We're going to look specifically, uh, primarily, in Matthew 24 to get that ball rolling. Now remember, uh, if you remember the past two weeks, I've talked about the fact that the Olivet Discourse is found in three places, uh, not just Matthew, what are the other two places? Mark, Luke and Mark. Can you be more specific? Mark 13. Mark 13 and Luke what? 21. Very good. Someone was paying attention. Well, I would hope that so the Olivet Discourse is found in Matthew 24. Now Matthew, of course, is a Jewish tax collector, and when he writes about the Olivet Discourse, he will use language that is specific to, uh, to uh, Jewish believers uh, whom he is writing to. So he uses words uh, that, uh, that they understand in that. Uh, Mark and Luke are writing primarily to the Gentiles, and don't use some of the same imagery. In fact, Mark, uh, his uh, discussion of all of the discourse is the shortest, as it, it barely takes up to chapter 13 there. So we are going to uh, start taking a look at this and try to decipher some of the things, and I will give you uh, the views of both the preterists and the uh, futurists as we go through this. So that means that we will have to actually look here in Matthew 24. Now, mind you, this is all setting a base for our next week's discussion, which will uh, tackle uh, Revelation, and uh, we will also talk about uh, um, the, uh, the Muslim belief and how that plays in things as well. So, stay tuned for next week. Bye, see you later. Thank you. I try to be brief, yet concise, you know what I'm saying? So, read Matthew 24, see you later. Here we go. Matthew 24. So, as Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. He responded, Do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth. They will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat, sat on the Mount of Olives, and his disciples came to us privately, and they said to him, Tell us, when will all of this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? So Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name, claiming that I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. You will hear of wars and threats of wars. 
but do not panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But this, all of this, is only the first of the birth pains, with more to come. You will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me, betraying the will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And the end will come. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel, the prophet, spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration, standing in the holy place. Pay attention. Those things in Judea, those who are in Judea must flee to the hills. The person out on the deck of the roof must not go down into the house to pack. The person out in the field must not return to even get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or the Sabbath. There will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. But it will be shortened for the sake of the chosen one. Let's go ahead and stop there. So it's been proposed that this entire chapter talks about nothing more than the destruction of Jerusalem. You have Jesus' spoken words in the temple. He speaks parable to the rulers. He speaks parable to the leaders there. He condemns the scribes and the Pharisees. He laments over Jerusalem. And then he gives this prophecy. The questions of the disciple, which Mark and Luke considered, appear to be these. When will these things be? And what will be the signs of all these things? So in verse 4 through 29, we show that Jesus describes many things that will take place. But he says that those are just the first birthing pains. So when we look at hearing wars, uh, threats of wars, uh, we shouldn't panic. Uh, when we hear of people coming to mislead, um, claiming to be the Messiah, that will not be the, the time. Nations will go to war against nations and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but all of that is just the first birthing pains. So that is not a sign that the end is near. Those are just precursors of what is to come. The one that, uh, that strikes us uh, as a thing that will take place is starting in verse 14. The good news about the kingdom will be 
preached throughout the world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. So if we are to take the previous view, we have to ask ourselves, has that taken place? Have all the nations heard the word of God? Preachers would point out that they believe that that has taken place at this point in time. And they point to a couple passages that show that. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans 10. So Romans 10. Verses 16 through 18. They say that Romans 10, verses 16 through 18 states, But not everyone welcomes the good news, for Isaiah the prophet said, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from hearing, that is, hearing the good news. Um, but I ask you, have the people of Israel actually heard the message? Yes, they have. The message has gone throughout the earth and the words to all the world. So what is Paul quoting though when he writes that? The message has gone throughout the earth and the words to all of the world. Right. They also point to Colossians Chapter 1, verse 23. So Colossians 1, verse 23, Paul writes, But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. So the preachers point to those two passages to indicate that the gospel, the good news, has in fact been preached to the entire world. Understanding that the entire world, according to the vernacular of that day and age, meant the entirety of the known world, which was basically just the Roman Empire. Now, futurists would tell you that this has certainly not taken place in the year 70 AD. In fact, it is still not taking place to this day. In this day and age where we have radio, television, movies, satellites, and the internet, we have finally now the capability for the message to be spread all the way across the world to every person, to every nation. But it still has not yet taken place. In fact, when we do look at the book of Revelation next week, in Revelation 14, verse 8, describes a situation of the message being preached just before the tribulation. So it is one of the last things that takes place before the great tribulation is to occur. Then we go on to verse 15. To what will be the sign? Now, Matthew, of course, as I indicated, is uh, writing primarily to the Jewish audience. 
and he uses the term, our NLT doesn't phrase it this way, uh, but he's uh, basically quoting Daniel in chapter 9 of Daniel and talking about the abomination of desolation. So what is an abomination of desolation? What is an abomination? Abomination is something that is horrific above nature. So it's it's not natural, but it's horrific. Uh, abomination is uh, a uh, abomination is a villain that matches old strength. Just to give you an idea, just to put it in, in something that you understand, uh, abomination is not kale. Sorry. It's very natural. Whether or not eating it is natural, I'll leave that up to you. But it is a natural. Uh, what is desolation? Destruction, uh, ruins, uh, complete wiping out. So you have the abomination of desolation. What Daniel is describing is something that comes across. Jerusalem specifically, that is so terrible, it is beyond nature. It is a complete abomination, not just against man, but against God. And the desolation that takes place from that, including the destruction of the temple and the worship of false gods in that temple, set up the place of the altar of God. So, there are four possibilities that Preachers would put forward, and I forgive me, but they're quite lengthy, so I must read from them directly here. There are four possibilities to indicate that this may have already taken place by AD 70. Some point to the zealots, the so called patriotic freedom fighters who rose up against the Roman oppression in defense of Jewish traditions and religions. This first emerged in AD 6 following the death of Herod the Great. Everybody's writing down their history lesson today, right? Uh, at the outbreak of the Jewish War, the Zealots stormed the city, occupied the temple area. They committed numerous sacrileges, including murder within the Holy of Holies. And in the winter of 67 and 68, they installed Fani as the high priest. And eventually the Zealots retreated to the mountain fortress in Masada. The surviving 960 rebels committed mass suicide in May of 73 AD to prevent being captured by the Romans. So that's one possibility that meets the abomination of desolation. The second possibility put forth by the priest is the Idumeans. They are considered as candidates because they occupied the territory once held by the ancient kingdom of Edom and came to Jerusalem at the request of the zealot leaders to participate in the revolution. And after gaining interest in the city, they killed more than 8,000 Jews in the outer court of the temple, including the chief priests, and they later withdrew from the city. So still, again, tied to the first opportunity, the zealots. The third opportunity 
Some argue that uh, the Jewish religious leaders, right? So the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the other ones. Essenes, right? Essenes. Huh? Jesus as the Messiah, it reduced any Jewish temple sacrifices to an abomination. So, because they rejected Jesus and they continued sacrifices in the temple, that was therefore an abomination at that point in time. And then the fourth and more popular idea put forward to meet this abomination of desolation is the identification of Titus and the armies of Rome. So this is a good history lesson for you. Here's what took place, and most of this is according to Josephus, who we've talked about before as a, as a historian that's outside of uh, the Bible. So while the city of Jerusalem was still burning, the soldiers brought their legionary standards into the temple precincts and offered sacrifices, declaring Titus to be the victor. They erected idols representing Caesar and the Roman eagle on standards, and that would have constituted the worst imaginable blasphemy to the Jewish people. So identifying Titus and his armies with the abomination of desolation is the most popular because it seems to parallel the actions of uh, Epiphanes in the second century. It is important to note that uh, Luke says uh, that the surrounding of Jerusalem by armies was the signal of the desolation drawing near. So basically what happened um, is that the, the, Jewish, uh, the Jewish people were surrounded and cut off. It was a siege uh, by the Roman army. Um, <clears throat> there was a brief drawback by Cretus, who was the general, and as he withdrew, um, most of the Christian Jews are said to have left the city, and of course preachers will say that they left the city by the rooftops because they had hated Jesus. And it is said that not a single Christian Jew died in that siege. However, in that siege, which was terrible beyond belief, including accounts by Josephus of a woman um, roasting her child and eating half of it and hiding half of it away because there was no food and there was no water. And then when people came because they smelled the burning flesh, she divided up the rest of her children. 1,100 I'm sorry, I'm running out of theory 11 million That's the kind of numbers that Josephus is putting forth and die Or is it 1.1 million? 1.1 million I have it written down but I stopped looking I apologize So they say that that was the abomination of desolation. And that all took place by 70 AD because that's when the temple was destroyed. Now the futurists will tell you that the abomination of desolation has yet to take place because there is no historical record 
of anything like the Greek tyrant Epiphanes desecration of the temple by erecting an altar to Zeus. Titus is listed did not do any type of such thing. So the standards from the Roman army being brought in and declaring Titus the victor was not setting up an idol to a god. However, Epiphanes, who they look for when they talk about the abomination of desolation, literally set up an altar to the god Zeus in the Jewish temple. So since Titus did not set up a separate temple within the temple walls to a specific god, this did not take place. Now it is true that people who were in Judea did flee to the mountains to avoid this tribulation. It is true that there were captives that were taken. It is true that um, 1.1 million perished. It is true that this was during the time of the Passover and there were more than 3 million Jews assembled. In the surrounding provinces, 250,000 were slain. 97,000 were taken captive, many of those killed in the Roman theaters. It is all taken on the word of Flavius Josephus, who has been known to exaggerate. Now the elect that were spared this shortened, uh, this shortened siege were uh, the Christians who were able to, uh, to escape the city of Cretus was the general that previously brought the armies against them withdrew for some reason before Titus himself took control of the armies in order to continue the siege and eventually reign the victorious. The futurists would point out what it says in verse 21. So let's continue reading from 15 to 21. It says in 15, the day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that caused the desecration standing in the holy place. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of the roof must not go down into the house of the pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible will it be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days? And pray that your plight will not be in winter during the Sabbath, for there will be great anguish since the world began, there, okay. For there will be a greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. So you, the futurists say you have to ask yourself, was the destruction of the temple in 70 AD the greatest persecution the Jews ever experienced? Or was there something that's more severe that has already taken place? So though Josephus says 1.1 million Jews were persecuted, you must ask yourself how many were persecuted during the Holocaust of World War II? Why there were 300 Jews in the city during the siege by Titus. There were more than 3 million Jews that were killed during World War II 
So the question is, is what happened in 70 AD greater than anything that they had ever seen or anything that will ever be? Futurists would say no because look at the Holocaust. It is surely a much greater occurrence than will ever be. So they say that you must conclude that the tribulation experienced by the Jews in 70 was not the greatest, since in verse 22 it says that it will be a period that is greater than there has ever been. And we have already experienced one that has ever been. So you and I live in a generation where these words have been literally fulfilled because we have seen a greater tribulation than what took place in 70 AD. And we also live in a world where an even greater tribulation can take place because we have things like nuclear weapons. In 1982, a book, The Faith of the Earth, proved mathematically that if the United States and, at that time, the United Soviet Socialist Republic, USSR, were to wage a nuclear war, it would wipe all life out from the Earth. And those weapons still exist. Many have been dismantled, but in reality, it only takes a few placed says, starting in verse 29, immediately after the anguish of these days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers and the heaven will be shaken. It's pretty powerful stuff, right? We're talking about astrological events taking place. We're talking about the sun darkening. The moon not giving any light, the stars falling from the heaven and no longer being there. Now the preachers would say that Jesus is just giving the same type of prophecies that you see throughout the Old Testament. So he's being true to the Old Testament prophets and using the exact same type of so it is not literally the sun will be darkened or the moon will not give light. It is not literally the stars will fall from heaven and the heavens will be shaken. He's giving a hyperbole, showing you how great a time of tribulation this will be. Immediately following those days of anguish. The futurist would say, you're not going to take that literally? How are you going to tell us that, yes, Jesus is talking very specifically here about the destruction of the temple, but here he's just talking about, you know, 
these are all supposed to be signs of uh, the Son of Man appearing in heaven. So we continue reading in 30. Then at last the sign of the Son of Man is coming to appear in the heavens, and there will be a deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a mighty blast of the trumpet, and will gather his chosen ones from the world, the farthest ends of the earth and the heavens. The preachers say that such events certainly sound like the second coming of Christ, but consider two reasons that they might be referring to Jesus coming at the last days. So even though it says specifically that they were to occur immediately after the tribulation of those days, they are not connected to that tribulation, but it is a continuation of what will happen in the future, a change in subject. Let's look at Mark's account in Mark 13. Mark 13, starting in verse 24. At that time, after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the furthest ends of the earth and heaven. Instead of immediately, Mark uses at that time. That at some point after the tribulation, at the time of the second coming, these are what will take place. Instead of immediately. They also say that the coming of Jesus was to occur at the conclusion of the siege of Jerusalem, but it wasn't really him coming back in physical form as described, it was his coming back through the destruction of the temple and his spiritual awakening through the spreading of his word. And again, all these are similar to the way that things were foretold for the judgment of, uh, of many different nations. And you can look through Isaiah and Ezekiel and see the destruction of Babylon, Egypt, Tyre, Edom, Nineveh, Israel, and Judah. You can see the similar type of languages used to describe the destruction of those nations as used here. So they would suggest that even in Matthew, Jesus refers to the destruction of Jerusalem and like Jewish prophets that came before and uses figurative language to depict the judgment to befall the wicked, provisions made for the righteous, and foretold judgment upon the people of Jerusalem. Now a futurist would tell you that while the preacherists tried to deal with this problem in a fanciful way by claiming that the second coming of Christ actually occurred in 70 AD, that 
It was a spiritual return and therefore invisible. It denies the promise that we see in Acts 1.11. What do we see in Acts 1.11? We turn to Acts 1, which all of us have at some point in time within the past several months gone over. Let's start in verse 6. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom, and he replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after saying this, he was taken up in a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. And as they strained to see him rising into heavens, two white robed men suddenly stood among them and said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into the heavens? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way that you saw him go. So futurists say that it is not feasible to claim that Jesus came back spiritually in 70 AD at the destruction of the temple because we are given promise in Acts 1.11 that he will return the same way that the disciples saw him go as he ascended into heaven. They use words like it's ludicrous to think that he came back in 1980. And it is an ill attempt to be fanciful in their interpretation and make scripture conform to a particular preconceived doctrine. So as you can see, there's definitely two sides of the debate that go strong at it, and they each believe that they are on the right track. If nothing else, though, we should take heed to what comes next. Starting in verse 32 of Matthew 24. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that the summer is near. And in the same way, when you see all of these things, you will know that his return is very near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or the hour of these things that will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself, only the Father. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up until the time that Noah entered his boats. People didn't realize that was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way that it will be when the Son of Man returns. Now the fig tree is said by the preachers to represent Israel. And they say that the fig tree has represented Israel many times in the past in several different passages. The futurists will say, if you look back, you will see that the fig tree never really represented Jerusalem or Israel. It 
was always the olive tree that represented the Jewish people. And there are many different uh, times that are pointed out. Let's see. Now keep in mind that he was on the Mount of Olives, which was known for fig trees. Why was it called the Mount of Olives? But the fig trees often grew up to be 25 feet tall. And it would have been, uh, uh, it would have been at that point in time because it was the Passover at its ripening point, and so he was using just those things to show him. The fig tree is uh, only symbolic. The futurists say because it is what Jesus said would wither, because it did not produce fruit for him. Now, as he pulls the fig tree to the side, he says, watch it for when it re-blossoms, all, all these things will happen. So setting aside uh, anything that occurred in 70 AD, the re-blossoming, according to futurists, of the fig tree took place in May 14, 1948, which is when Israel was reestablished. So even if it does, even if the fig tree does uh, signify Second coming of Christ in the physical form 
Now, so there are two returns of the Son of Man. But the one thing that we must take heed of, regardless of preterist or futurist tendencies, is that we must all be prepared and we should live our life now as if the Lord is returning today, meaning there is a great urgency in what we do. So the question that is put forth by both is, by both is are we ready? Are our things in order? They would regard that as a serious question that we need to ask ourselves. So much for our history lesson today. So I have some questions for you. First of all, what does it look like to live your life knowing that the coming of the Lord is imminent? What does it look like to live your life knowing that the coming of the Lord is imminent? Second, do you believe that there are consequences for taking either interpretation Does it make sense to quibble over the understanding of this passage? Is this something that should be at the forefront of your mind? Are there consequences for taking the view of the preachers? Are there consequences for taking the view of the futures? And what do you believe? Let's go to our cell groups and discuss. And